0: I see a lot of people who are just, who are fixated on, it needs these certain characteristics and otherwise it's a no-go. Like for me, I mean, look, the Heritage is very working capital intensive. You know, we have a lot of inventory, we have a long sales cycle. That's painful at points. There are other businesses that are heavy CapEx. There are other businesses that have labor issues. Everything has problems. You just sort of have to choose your heart. Pick what you're willing to deal with.
1: There's an entire generation of Americans who no longer care about prestige, titles, work travel, fancy offices and lunches. Welcome to Mundane Millionaires, a podcast for this generation of small business owners who want to set their ego aside and focus on what matters. Family, community, quality of life and cash flows. In each episode, Eric Pasifici and Kevin Henderson uncover what it takes to get a little money in the bank, control your time, and invest in building great families and lives. Let's get started.
2: Eric, super fascinating conversation with Kevin Biebelhausen this week. What did you think? Well, what were your takeaways or highlights?
3: Well, Kevin is a, you know, he's an interesting guy. He's had an interesting journey to entrepreneurship through acquisition entrepreneurship, had a busted deal in 2018 that he talks about, kind of fell out there. Then he had, you know, a life-threatening medical condition during COVID in 2021 that, you know, almost frankly took him out. But he talks about kind of how that colored his perspective. And, you know, then he gets into the lifestyle of being the CEO and kind of the working the longer hours, but having the greater sense of fulfillment and enjoyment in that work that I think we all kind of strive for. So it was, it was fun to hear from Kevin. He's had a winding path to entrepreneurship.
2: No, absolutely. And I, and I thought that was one of the most interesting things uh, about Kevin's story also is, you know, coming not from a business background, you know, there are a lot of people that Kind of look at business buying like a you know oh that's great for the MBAs and business school people but that's not me I don't have that type of background in finance or 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 business and you know just such a a great story Kevin was a, a music major and kind of professional semi professional opera singer and actor and how he wound his way eventually to the CEO seat of a pretty large from small business you know, perspective, a, a pretty large company, just su- super inspiring story for a lot of people that may feel like that's unattainable, even for them, you know, not, not having a business degree or something. So yeah. great discussion. Hope, full, hope. The full life cycle, Kevin, because he goes from totally. average guy, you know,
3: typical, normal guy, non-business guy, all the way to struggling through the entrepreneurship through acquisition process. Acquiring the business, and now he's a CEO, and he's raising fund to actually invest in other searchers, and so seeing that full life cycle. Such of a great a cycle, typical, yeah. You know, Kevin's a Kevin's a great
2: guy, but he's a typical guy, you know. And it's 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 fun to hear those stories. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, hope hope everyone enjoys and, and can take something from this episode. So enjoy our, our chat with Kevin Biebelhausen. Well Kevin it's good to catch up and have you on uh Monday Millionaire super excited to talk about you it's been a it's been a minute but you've been a, a longtime friend of of Eric and I since we jumped well I say long time since we really jumped into the ETA space a year ago it feels like a lifetime so. it, it, in
0: a lot of ways it does yeah I mean we 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 met last well you and I met on Twitter and I you were actually the first one that I DM'd for SMB Twitter I think you
2: know that, but maybe maybe not No, hundred percent I, I recall because we had a meeting before our law firm, SMB Law Group, even formally yep. launched. I don't remember if we met in person. I was trying to remember if we met we for coffee didn't. or if we just chatted no, by phone. We didn't originally. Yeah, yeah I think but, it was I think it
0: was just by phone. And then you invited me to go to the um uh, the meetup in South Lake or Grapevine, wherever yeah. it was. And uh, from there, I'm like, you know, actually my friend Sam runs this boot camp. You should go check it out. So I did. Yeah, you know, that's, that's, and then all three of you were there. So that's where I met Eric and that's where I met Sam for the first time. So, yeah, I mean, it's, you got, you're, you're, you're kind of my gateway. You're kind of my, yeah. uh, my entry well, point in JSMB. Yeah, we met at the boot camp. It's hard to keep it in, yeah, contact. Yeah. By the way, t- the two Kevin thing, this should be
3: fun. So <laughs> you'll manage.
0: You'll manage. Refer
3: to you guys. There's not
0: many, there's not many times where
2: two Kevins get on the same call. It's kind that's of rare. Right. 90s kids. <laughs> yeah. Or 80s, whatever it was. Well, just to set the stage, and for those watching the podcast as opposed to listening, they're they're seeing what looks like a relatively empty office with a few de- Duke basketballs in the background. But fast forward from when you and I originally met—I mean, maybe hard to come through on on video—but you're 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 sitting in the CEO chair. So, yeah, catch us up for a second on on where you are today, and then and then we want to dig into sort of your. Journey and story into and into entrepreneurship.
0: Yeah, so i in, in January of this year, 2023. I bought Heritage Fabrics, which is a um, what they call a textile converter. We're functionally a middleman between sort of the interior design companies or companies that sell direct to interior design and the mills that produce product. A lot of the, I mean, if you if you've been in the the southeast region in the North Carolina, Virginia's Virginia, North Carolinas you can You can see that there's been a lot of a lot of closing of mills and and a lot of factory plants or um furniture plants. and it's really kind of decimated the economy here. It's coming back, but but all that to say is it's not very profitable to weave in the United States anymore. Uh, yeah. You can, but it's it's certainly not as prevalent as it once was. So what we do is we have the we're more of a design house. so we've got designers here that that develop product, that do the color work. That go out and talk to the customers, and then we outsource manufacturing overseas to a couple different countries, and then import the products and sell it sort of wholesale to the companies that that go and direct to designers or furniture manufacturers or whatever. So we're kind of in the middle there, but it's a nice place to be in the supply chain, in my opinion. I mean, we kind of, you know, our our lifeblood is inventory. You know, the, the reason they yeah. would go direct to us through instead of going overseas number one, we have lower, you know, lower order quantities, lower MOQs for for people. We can do, you know, cut yardage, uh, whereas overseas they want, you know, three to five hundred yards at a time. But yeah, so we're 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 a lot more flexible, and obviously we can deliver, you know, within a couple of days because we're on shore here in the states. Yeah.
2: So so back up to when we met a year ago. If I had asked you on when we met originally in person you know mm-hmm. and, and i had said hey a year from now we're going to be chatting and you're going to be the the owner of a textiles company what 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 would the response have been i mean how, how did you end up with it wouldn't heritage fabrics
0: yeah it wouldn't have been positive i mean i was looking at <laughs> i mean i i think i think if you would have if you would have stopped that sentence and said like you would have been in the CEO. I, I knew that was going to be the case because i was absolutely hell-bent on getting this done and you guys you know were were very kind through my whole search and acquisition process, but I, I know I was a bit of a maniac because I wanted it so bad to get this deal across or get any deal across the finish line, any deal that I thought was a good deal. I just, I wanted to do this. I was a hundred percent sure yeah. I was, I was totally bought in. So if you were to stop your sentence there, like, Hey, you're going to be the CEO in a year. I'd have been like, great. I agree. <laughs> but then, you know, the next part of the sentence, it's going to be for a textile company. We're like, okay, well, I don't know anything about textiles. I started my search and and the healthcare, I come from the healthcare industry, where I was mainly in a technology function, technology strategy and ops. And uh, so, I mean, naturally, the, the businesses I started to look at were healthcare businesses, and, and IT service businesses, both of which were are quite overvalued, especially at, you know, in, in healthcare, you look at the 2021 numbers for COVID you know, those are record years for a lot of those companies and surprise all the sellers want, you know, to trade on those on those banner years. I would too if I were them, but I wasn't going to give them, you know, an over, and I wasn't going to
2: overpay for those business,
0: businesses. I couldn't, afford, I couldn't afford to overpay.
2: <laughs> which financial impact of those years aside, healthcare yeah. and IT services and things like that are, are already trading at, Higher multiples premiums. than some other, yeah. certainly yeah. like, you know, distribution, manufacturing, uh, home services and things like that. So it's kind of double whammy as you're l- launching the search in 2022. I yeah. in IT
0: services, IT services, there's there's some that trade at reasonable multiples, but I mean, I, I regularly would get people asking for nine to 13x you know, on a uh, on an IT services company, just because it was in a cool industry. Like here's one in the gaming industry and we, we're, it's going to trade for 13X. Like, well, not to me, but good luck to you. But I mean, it's, it would be a cool business, but not that cool. So anyway, i looking for, you know, I got a little, you know, a dose of reality after, I don't know, six months or so, kind of beating my head against the wall, looking for these two different, you know, industries and realized I need to be a little bit more agnostic industry wise and you know came across this textile company which i didn't quite realize it at the time but it is pretty good fit for my background and my temperament but the things i liked about the business were incredibly practical like they they do they had audited or reviewed financials for the last decade how many small businesses yeah have audited or reviewed financials for the last decade eric not not many of them yeah why was that kevin Oh, that's, well, it's because of the next point where why I buy the, bought the business is because the ownership group was, they're serious people. They're, you know, the, the CFO of the company was a former Fortune 1000 textile CFO. Like they took it seriously. And I also think that early on, they, they had MES debt and the MES debt, the MES lenders wanted, wanted that, but they did it. They continued that practice far after they, they paid off that debt. So, I mean, it was, it was something that they were going to do and they incurred that expense every year. And it was, it was a huge reason why I bought this business because when I did QAV, I knew things would flush out and they did, you know, within a, within a, you know reasonable margin. But I mean, I knew exactly what I was buying. That's again, my experience in this industry or this, this search space is that that's not very normal. It's a lot more cocktail, you know, numbers on the back of a cocktail napkin versus, you know, here's the entire you know, here's the books for the last, you know, fifteen right. years or whatever. That's pretty great. So I, I had a lot of confidence in, in what they were doing. I trusted the sellers, sellers, they're really great people. And you, you know, you I, I I did an on-site meeting and you know, you sit across from them and look them in the eye, you're like, Okay, are is this person gonna screw me or are these people, you know, for are they for real? And you just know, you know, after one conversation, like these these guys are legit. You know, like they care about their employees, they wanted to remain independent. That's why I'm looking at this business and they're not trying to sell it to a strategic or something because they believe that the business needs to remain independent for the industry. And as I travel around to different customers now, that's becoming more and more, it's becoming more and more apparent why the seller did that and how appreciated that is by the customers, that we're not yeah. now a division of a larger company or or what have you, or even like a large private equity shop or something. It's my family business. There's There are... Most of these companies in this industry are second, third, fourth generation businesses, and so now I'm kind of in the same category, right? It's you know we're not multi generational, but we're in that family business ethos. It's still the, the family. Know, it, it fits. Yeah, ethos. it fits yeah. with it. Yeah, exactly. It, exactly, it fits with the industry.
2: Interesting.
3: And Kevin, you, you had a busted deal previously, right? Was this search? At I all had too.
2: By? Yeah.
0: Well, oh, oh, yeah. you mean you mean in 2018 when I first started. Well, uh, I've I, had, I had a lot of busted deals. Yeah, I know yeah. that you yeah. have.
3: So, you so. have one that really kind of you, you had mentioned a few times, and you had learned a lot from it. What yeah. aspects of this search and this acquisition were kind of colored by that experience?
0: So, yeah. So, I mean, so in tell, my, tell us even about even about in the this, deal first of all. To, back yeah, up to this. So, yeah. So I'll kind of go backwards. So in in my search in twenty two, I went through a few LOIs like like most people do. You send it out, it it, yeah. it falls apart for you know early in financing. And at that point I knew when to cut bait because I had gone through my experience in 2018 when I, and it was just when the Harvard business review or the HBR guide came out buying small businesses and I listened to a podcast about it. So it came out in 2017. I read it in 2018 and was like, this is exactly what I want to do. And I I've told this story, you know, to just about anybody who will listen as, as, you know, when you read the story that's you know, this guy bought a porta potty business, this is exactly what I want to do. This is this is it. You know, I wanna own that company. Check is a bit different from that, but you know, the, the attitude still applies. <laughs> but I, I went out and I found business through a normal broker that I'm sure everybody's heard of. It was a it was a it was an e commerce business and it was a small deal, but it was all I could really afford at the time. It turns out I couldn't actually afford it because what happens was I I got I got kind of the runaround and lending and, you know, had the whole deal worked out. It wasn't a great deal. I didn't know what I was doing. You know, they tried to charge more for inventory and you know, whatever. I let them kind of pull the wool over my eyes a little bit, but I got towards the end of the deal and we're going through underwriting and, you know, they had asked me for X in equity. Then they came back and they're like, actually we need two X. And I said, well, that's all the money I have, you know, and it was not, it was a significant sum of money for me at the time, but, but in the grand scheme of things, it wasn't a lot of money, but It was for me at the time. And, you know, I didn't know how to raise capital. I didn't know you could raise capital for a self-funded deal. Uh, I'm not even sure those terms existed back then. SMB Twitter certainly didn't exist. Like the whole infrastructure that has popped up around this space is kind of wild. And You guys are obviously a part of that in the last couple of years. But, I mean, when I was doing this in 2018, it was traditional search guys. And and that's pretty much it. Uh, Or at least, you know, it wasn't as it certainly wasn't as talked about or or common to do any sort of self-funded thing. So, it, I mean, it, it busted because I, I didn't know how to go get extra equity. I didn't know, I didn't know I could. And so I just folded on the deal and uh, kind of licked my wounds and went back to my corporate gig before I, you know, ended up with a health crisis in 21 due to COVID and was in and out of the hospital. And, you know, it was one of those clarifying experiences that you go through and you're, you know, you're kind of left with a decision You know, after after recovery, you're looking for something to look forward to or even even through recovery. You're looking for something to put on the horizon. And the thing I put on the horizon was I actually I still want to buy a business. So that was what, you know, three, four years later. And, you know, I had not lost that desire. I just kind of sat on the sidelines, you know, just doing my corporate gig. So that really kind of gave me the the renewed passion to get out there and and make it happen, because if it wasn't going to be now.
2: When was it going to be? You know, I'd always have an excuse to put it off. So going as you're getting to that point, though, how did you how did you bridge that gap? Right. So, you know, a, a lot of people who hear about buying a business are probably in the seat where you were in 2018. Like that. That sounds awesome. It sounds like you can have a great career and work for yourself. But, yeah, they have no idea the terms, how to do it, what an equity raises, what's possible and things like that, and and could easily get burned. You know, for someone that's worried about that, what did you do coming out of your health crisis, for lack of a better word, in, in 21 with COVID to to kind of fix an address so that when you kicked off a new search again in 2022, you were a fundamentally different searcher, right? You're armed with a bunch of new and better information to protect against 2018 happening all over again. What did that look like? It was it was basically education, you know, education that didn't exist in in 2018. You know, I was kind
0: of going through it on my own in 2018, just reading the HBR guide, which is, you know, I think a little bit more slanted towards the, you know, traditional search as as you might expect. But but sure. you know, there just wasn't the education out there for for self funded, and I, I didn't really realize that's what I was trying to do. Like there, I don't even think there was. Any sort of title around that at that point, I, I could be wrong, but no, it was it was in in 22. I that was when I I met you. That was when I got hooked up at the boot camp for at Pursuing Capital, and it was at that point I I had been through enough, especially with my my deal that took you know it took forever to die in 2018. I I just kept clinging on to it, so I had gone. Th- I made a bunch of mistakes, and so at that point I kind of knew what I didn't want to do or what I did wrong or what, you know, what I let them make me believe or or whatever. And so I knew I needed, I needed people. I needed community in order to actually get this thing done. And I I talk to searchers all the time now. And so it's like, this is a team sport. Like you have to have people in your corner or people to talk to do a sanity check. You know, just the networking piece of this is, is so important. And, you know, I was talking to some other people the other day and, it sounds trite to say just get on twitter and start but you kind of you kind of need to especially if you know you don't not everybody and i don't know how i don't know anybody that's got people in their in their area that talk about business buying all the time you have to go seek those people out who are all over the country and they a lot of them congregate you know on twitter or or another platform but you need to find people that that are like-minded and going through the same things together And that's one of the reasons I'm also now, you know, I've kind of moved from the search phase to the CEO phase and I'm doing, you know, these CEO groups with people who have gone through the same process, right? So it's, there's a moderator who's seasoned and can kind of give us advice. And then there's, you know, a bunch of first or second time CEOs in the group. And so it's, it's helpful to kind of, you know, be able to bat some of these questions around and have that safe space to to ask really dumb questions. So I don't look like a fool in front of my staff, you know?
2: Yeah. So you've really taken that community ethos, and I didn't know this, so over, I mean, it's, it's bridged right into this new role as a CEO. I mean, I, totally. I, I think that's such undervalued advice because, you know, people look at the CEO as kind of the lone wolf at the top, sort of dictating down without realizing, you know, to do it that way has got to be pretty lonely. I imagine CEO groups like that are just outrageously invaluable.
0: Yeah. And I, I, I wish, I think search was lonelier than being a CEO. And that's probably because I have networking groups now to be a CEO and those are a lot more common. Right. But anything in search, you know, search is really lonely, especially those of us who are doing self-funded. So like, I like the, I like the little groups that pop up, you know, that, that have like Steve Ressler's group, like the Bryden group, they've got that little cohort and they meet, you know, regularly and they have that sort of sense of community you know, in, in a tr- more traditional search model. But, you know, for self-funded, it's basically just you and your laptop in your house and you're just yeah. grinding through it. And it's lonely, man. Like that's, you got to really want it in order to, to get through all the crap and to deal with all the brokers and deal with, you know, all the t- things that it you know, will break a deal and it's stressful. And yeah, but it's worth it if you can get through to the end. You know, it's a process that I'm glad I went through. And I think at that point I was hardened enough and I was committed enough you know I what did I have to lose at that point you know I was just gonna kind of keep grinding
2: through I've got off guard by what do I have to lose I mean people, I got to imagine there are a lot of listeners laughing out loud at that I mean that you right. know there, there's a it's, lot riding on this
3: yeah and Kevin at the time yeah. you were living in North Texas you had a you know large property with horses if I recall correctly that your your wife Sarah is passionate about horses and you, know, you had to I don't know if you sold that property yet or you're in the process of selling working your on it what's that working on it working on it yeah to move you know to rural north carolina or you know small town north carolina you know and obviously a world of opportunity for somebody like yourself and yet you chose small business entrepreneurship and b2b textiles i mean you had a lot to lose
0: yeah, it, well, it's an interesting, I think it's my perspective now after being, you know, I, I have almost died and almost had a heart transplant and everything. So it's, you know, once you go through something like that and you talk to, you know, palliative care, do end-of-life care in the hospital, you know, sign all your documents, all your wills, all your all your, your stuff, a lot of but things we, look a lot less uh, stressful than going through that. You know, can, a lot less can risky we, than going through can that. Can we pause
2: there for a second? Because you, you can't, I mean, you you can't say going through end-of-life care and palliative care and and leave it at that so take a step back for a second and you know to the extent you don't mind sharing because i again i think yeah. it's important to frame your frame of mind going into closing on this deal what happened in 2021 just wa- walk us through briefly
0: so yeah so i mean i got i got covid i was I, as i said i was in healthcare and you know what where i contracted it i don't know it doesn't matter i got covid and i was one of the unfortunate few who got myocarditis because of it so Podcasts are are an audio platform, but I'm gonna I'm gonna make, you know, a a visual demonstration here where my podcast
2: as well. So
0: Right. So from a small size to a large size, you know. And it's funny when, you know, you go back and look at some of those some of those scans. I mean, they found it because I was in a car accident a couple of years before and they had an image of my heart this size. And then when they did another scan after I went back into the emergency department and it was, you know, this big, uh, they realized there's, you know, there's a problem. And you know, within five minutes of being in the ED, which is the hospital I worked in, after five minutes of being in the emergency department, the doctor's like, "You're going to need a heart transplant." And to go, you know, I showed up at the hospital thinking like, "Oh, it's some kind of gastric thing." You just—it's hard to describe. You're you're full of fluid. You know, if you have got you know a heart issue like that, and you just you feel very, you feel very buoyant. And so, it, to me, it felt like, and I was, like, oh, it's a stomach thing, and I was I was throwing up and all that kind of stuff, and. You know, it's not something you ever think about at 30 that there's a potential or there was an issue with your heart. You never think that that's the cause. I didn't have any history of heart issues in my family, none of that. So what they ended up doing was they kept me in the hospital for a while, obviously. They put in what's called a pick line, which is a um, like a semi-permanent IV. It's like a central line that goes straight down to your heart. And they fed me with what the cardiologists would affectionately call rocket fuel which basically supported my heart as I was going through titrating up oral medications. And, you know, frankly, I, I was unlucky that I contracted it, but I was lucky in that I contracted it while I was young. And I was, I was lucky that my body responded to the medication. I was lucky that, you know, my age was low enough <laughs> to to be able to fight a little, be a little bit stronger than somebody who would have been, you know, in their seventies in their or eighties going through heart failure. And yeah, I mean, just the, the, just the fact that I, I was able to respond well to the medication, I mean, it was I was very fortunate. But going through all of that stuff, yeah, I mean, in order to do a transplant, you get seen by every department in the hospital. So every department comes to see you. There's even a dentist that comes to see you. And one of the people that comes to see you, besides the chaplain, to talk about end-of-life is palliative care, and it's, that's end-of-life care. That's, you know, talking about what, what happens if something goes wrong. What happens, do you want to be resuscitated? Do you want right. to, you know, and all of that kind of stuff. And yeah, you kind of put all your, your last wishes on, on a document and it's kept by the hospital. And then you just kind of cross your fingers. But fortunately I didn't have to go under the knife. I didn't have to have my, my chest opened and my heart replaced. I was able to recover on the oral medication and then eventually get off the IV around Thanksgiving of 21, right before Thanksgiving. So it was about 11 months I had, I had it in. Yeah. So you're
3: obviously you recover from that and you've got to be feeling like fuck it i gotta go live life i mean
0: exactly no and that's and that's so it's it may sound flip when i say what did i have to lose but at that point what did i have to lose i mean i've kind of already been through you know i've been through a near-death experience and it i I don't think you go through something like that and not have your perspective changed i think anybody who's experienced any sort of health crisis like that very personally or, or in their family like you tend to look at things a little bit different. And, you know, for me, the things that seemed risky before don't seem as risky. Or, you know, they do, but you're willing to take the risk because what the hell else are you gonna do? You know, what are you gonna do? Just sit on the sidelines and not do something because you're afraid to do it? That's kind of a crappy way to live.
2: Yeah. And so sort of, for me, yeah, go it ahead. It sort of resets your viewpoint about what the stakes are, is kind of the 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 way I think about it. Cause yeah, I mean it's it's absolutely risky. To sign a personal guarantee on a $5 million loan with a, with a small business that you've done, you know, eight weeks of diligence on, you know, or, or whatever. Like, you can't say that's not risky, but the stakes all of a sudden seem so much different that it makes the other intangibles of that entrepreneurship journey seem so much important, much more important, right? Because it's like, yeah, I mean, i I could lose everything financially, but... Now I get to be at my kid's t-ball game at 3 o'clock every Tuesday or whatever. And, and all of a sudden, the stakes of, of those things start to shift where it's like, yeah, I, I could lose money. I mean, I don't want to minimize the importance of, of no. your financial life. But anyway.
3: Well, it's, well, to it's, it's, it's a, in, in a profound
2: way, though, right, Kevin? I
3: mean, so we had a situation about a year ago next month where we got a terminal misdiagnosis for my 2-year-old and when they told us hey your 2-year-old's dying they said oh there's also a 50-50 chance that your 4-year-old is dying too because it's a genetic oh condition God. we had to live with that for a month <laughs> and what you don't realize is you think that you know for the our video watchers you think that the realm of potential outcomes is this wide right you've lived your life for 30 plus years and yeah. best case scenario worst case scenario and then what you realize is the ceiling for what is possible in terms of negative things that can happen when it pertains to health and your family this it's so much more profound than you could ever even conceptualize that unfortunately you'd obviously to round that out you know everybody's fine everybody's healthy it was a misdiagnosis, but it definitely augments the reality that you live in and you cannot explain it right you cannot even begin to grasp it until you've been. Where you've been, or where I've been, and so yeah, I love. And, and, and I, frankly, when you see people like that that have lived through that, or lived through really the the hardest life traumatic stuff, those are the people to invest in, and those are the people because they appreciate life, I think, at a different level, and they get the
0: potential circumstances to a different degree. I don't know if you see yeah, it, yeah, experience, Kevin, but yeah. Well, Totally. No, it's, and it is incredibly hard to describe. And it's just one of those things you, I hope, I hope nobody listening to this ever experiences, but, but it is, you know, it is true. It's just one of those things you go through and, and you can't help but be changed by it. I think, unless you're a sociopath, I think you, you can't help but be changed by it. But, but I think, I think the other thing that, that is so important to kind of call out too is like your, your, your visualization of the, of of the range of things, the range of outcomes. You know, we, every, everybody on this call, or this podcast, I guess, is was you guys far more than me because you're not that much older than me, but you're far more successful professionally than I was. But you had done everything the right way. You had kind of done exactly what was expected. You know, if you, you checked the boxes, you went to good schools, you went to good law schools, and then you went to go work for top firms, right? And you, you had kind of lived, you know, lived your life by taking these steps and doing exactly what you're supposed to do. And I sort of, I sort of, ended up doing something like that but you you feel like you're putting in the work you feel like you're doing you know this is this is the path and then you go through something like that and then your your eyes kind of are open to like there is more out there than just working in a top 10 law for, or more working you know at a yeah. top hospital or yeah you know, it's it who cares <laughs> you know like, wouldn't you rather wouldn't you rather wear you know a golf shirt and sit in your house and and talk to Talk to me today versus you know right. trying to schmooze and manage up to a, a partner at, at some firm or you know I've seen I've seen some of the the pictures that are floating around on Twitter with people who have their monogram <laughs> the I think it was, I think it was Bradford yeah, yeah. monogram cuffs and stuff you're like yeah it just who cares I would at one point you cared that
2: but... I never monogrammed a shirt okay <laughs> so I did I
3: monogrammed a few shirts and I took them to Goodwill actually recently and I kind of had a chuckle because I haven't worn a suit now and. Three years, not even, yeah. no, not even for an occasion, right? Like nothing. Right. And I don't right. care at all. And now I think I'm to the point where I don't know that there is an occasion that I'll wear a suit, <laughs> maybe a wedding. Well, that's just I the Florida man man my, coming
2: out. I can't, I can't, can't wait go. to invite Eric to my kid's weddings, you know, and he's going to he's gonna show up in that polo and, shorts, this one. and J1s. Ones right. and, you know, Kevin, I, I want to keep going on that thread, but a slightly different direction only because I think you have another unique aspect to, you know, your path to entrepreneurship in that you didn't grow up, professionally speaking, in the business world. And so a a lot of people, right, when you go through college and you study finance and you work at a private equity fund or you go become a manager at a, you know, corporate office or whatever, you kind of work up through the business world and then decide like, yeah, I can take this business skill set I've been building since I was 18 years old, and I can pivot it over to my own my own thing and and buy a business. That's not necessarily your history. So even pre kind of health issue and things like that, you ended up working in the corporate world without that sort of business background and things like that. Like, Walk us through where you started, studied in college and things like that, to where you started transitioning into the corporate world and thinking about entrepreneurship even before that initial search in 2018.
0: Yeah. So I grew up wanting to do something different than what my dad did. And my dad was, I don't know if you guys know this, my dad was a professional trumpet player went to Cincinnati conservatory of music I didn't and know yeah. So he went, he went to a couple of years of conservatory there. Yeah, no, I know. I, I remember <laughs> you've got trumpets in the back and um, he decided two years, my dad's smarter than me. He was two years into his, his conservatory education decided like, well, I can't really make a living doing this. So, and I, not the living I wanted. So he, he ended up, he ended up going to sweep floors at a pharmacy and then um, ended up going to pharmacy school and, being a manager and now did his whole corporate career it took me a little bit longer to realize that so i also went to music school thinking that i was doing something different than my dad because i was gonna i was gonna finish and i did two degrees i did a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in music i didn't do trumpet i was i was an opera singer and i did that sort of semi-professionally did a did a couple small gigs but realized a lot later than my dad that you know hey you actually can't make a good living doing this like it's very difficult if you don't have you don't have a sponsor you don't have family money you don't have you know it's just you don't you don't make a lot and so i i kind of figured out that like okay well, i wasn't gonna go i thought about going the academic route get my doctorate and going to teach at a university doing stuff like that but even that like i didn't want to i didn't want to put myself in the middle of um you know podunk usa to go teach at a school i wanted to have more control over where i lived and if you're- half
2: of our listeners kevin
0: no, it's the truth, though, because like you're it's sort of like being in it's sort of like being in the military in a way where like the, you, you kind of get told where you're going yeah. because there are only so many academic jobs that open up. Right. And you you're at that point, you can't afford to be picky. So yeah. if no, absolutely. you know,
2: you may have never envisioned yourself in Topeka, Kansas, and, and all of a sudden you're that's teaching. where the yeah. job is. So no, that's no, where I, you're I going.
0: It. Yeah, exactly. And I'm I'm from flyover country, so. Maybe that gives me a little bit of a, a pass there. I'm from the Midwest. So, but yeah, so I, looking at that kind of stuff, I quickly, or not so quickly, realized that, you know, I needed to go back into corporate. I followed my dad into healthcare. So, again, this is me the entire time thinking that I'm doing stuff different than my dad. When in reality, I didn't. Went into healthcare, worked in the pharmaceutical industry for a little bit, and eventually made my way into health systems. Where I was doing technology strategy and ops, but every time I, I moved roles, it was, I mean, I didn't have that business background that, that you were talking about. Like I didn't have any formal education. It was just, you know, school hard knocks, just figuring it out like plenty of people do in, in corporate, right? A lot, there's plenty of liberal arts majors, you know, who, who do quite well in corporate roles who don't have, you know, necessarily a finance degree or, or whatever. But yeah, a lot of it was just on the job training. And when I came out of my health issue, that was one of the reasons, you know, I enrolled at Duke was because I wanted the formal education. I I wanted I wanted there to be no reason that somebody wouldn't trust me with capital, that somebody that, or uh, uh, that somebody wouldn't trust me with capital, and that I was giving myself every opportunity to succeed at buying a company, right? Like I didn't want to make sure I, I wanted to make sure that there was no secret sauce that you learn at an MBA that I would miss out on to run my company i mean the truth is there's not right it's not you don't need an mba to run a small business but for me it was important to do that i for me i wanted to have the formal education i wanted to have the the experience of going through a program so yeah sort of in a roundabout way i found myself getting the formal business education but certainly didn't start that way
2: that's super interesting and and in the grand scheme of things that it, it means nothing, but let's get a, a a little bit controversial here because we, we see this argument all the time and it, it kind of drives me a, a little bit crazy. So I apologize in advance for derailing us, Eric, but I'm so thinking back to your education and music and where you sit now in a CEO chair, is there anything you draw from as you look back to college? Because we see this argument all the time that like, don't go to college and get a liberal arts major because if you major in interpretive dance, you're throwing away money and it's completely worthless. You should just go, you know, whatever it is. Where do you come down in this argument? What do you draw from your experience as a music major now sitting in the CEO chair? Or do you agree that like, yeah, if I could go back again, I never would have studied music because it was worthless. Like, wh- Where do you come down on that question? First of all, I got a full
0: ride scholarship to both places, so I came out debt free. I would do it again. Uh, I, you know, and there's plenty of people that graduate with a ton of student loans. And so, if you're taking on a lot of debt to go do a liberal arts degree, it's probably not the best idea. But if you're able to do it for free and do something you love, I think that's perfectly fine. Obviously, you can be successful in a lot of different areas doing that. I would say, I mean, there's are certainly skills that you develop, and I can just speak from my experience, since you know, as as a musician and as an actor you know i use those skills all the time i use those skills i mean it's the presentation skills it's the you know speaking in public it's the interacting with people it's a lot of the collaborations sort the same some of the similar things with athletics like the teamwork and the collaboration and the working with others and getting along and you know, all that stuff it's incredibly important in a musical ensemble just as it would be you know on a on an athletic field so i draw on that all the time and the other thing that, that I don't think I realized until relatively recently was that, you know, doing doing the whole music thing and, and being a career musician, you are the CEO of your career. And it's not something that I managed very well, you know, in my 20s when I was doing it. But you're your own PR person. You're oftentimes your own agent because, you know, you haven't gotten representation yet. You're your own audio person. You're, you know, you're the product, you're the, you're the business manager, you're, you know, the bookkeeper, you're, you're all of her mainly because you can't afford to hire anybody. So you got (laughs) to figure it out. And so, yeah, I mean, like stuff like that actually, I think matters to kind of go through that whole process of you do learn to sell a product. You do. I mean, I've, I've schlepped my bag through New York, you know, a big old shoulder bag that I had because I didn't, I couldn't afford, I stayed in a hostel in New York which I would never do now was like 150 bucks a night or something. And so there's a shared bathroom and everything and I couldn't afford anything else. But that's what I, when I traveled to New York for auditions, that's where I stayed. And I, you know, I, I couldn't afford to spend the money for an additional night. So on the last day for auditions, I had to like carry my bag around the city and like leave it outside the, the audition room. And yeah, man, like that's, but that stuff teaches you how to grind. You yeah. know, I, I really think it does, because let me tell you, that sucks to have a, a huge bag, you know, that you're, you're schlepping through the streets in New York on and off of subways, trying to figure it out. And then you just got to go and perform in front of five or six people who are maybe 10 feet away. You might be the last thing between them and lunch, and they're just doing this the whole time, you know, just not paying attention because yeah. they're, they're worried about where their next meal is coming from. Yeah, I've done it all, you know, and it's, that's, you want to talk about a bruise to your ego, that's a bruise to your ego, you know, you spent the money to get there, you spent the time to audition, you spent all this stuff and it's just like, whatever, you're there to, you're cool. there to audition and yeah, so I I think that does build a lot of resilience. I would say, yeah. I mean, I can't, I can't prove it that it, that created some of the the nature to grind for me, but I think it absolutely helped in kind of learning how to do that, how to
2: get through stuff like that no it's super fascinating i i'd never really thought about the performative aspect to managing and leading when you put it in that context because you can i mean you can contrast right if you've ever worked for people in the past and and we all have right you can contrast like that person you worked for where you always knew a hundred percent what was going on in their life because there was just like i mean you know it you got who you got and there was no kind of ability to filter versus that person that was always, you know, irrespective of what may have been going on was able to turn on that performative aspect, right? To still inspire and lead notwithstanding, you know, what they're what they're dealing with when they get back to their desk or step outside of the office and, you know, that's Right. Not to say it's always 100% mentally healthy to just, you know, mask what's going on in your life, but I think it is an underrated skill and in management that's fascinating to think about when you put it in those terms, you know, it's, it's similar to when I hear lawyers like talk about how much they hate sales. And I just kind of like laugh and I'm like, I, good luck. What is it you think you do here? Yeah. you, <laughs> <at> <laughs> you, <the firm>. you. <laughs> But anyway,
3: so uh, speaking of which, Kevin, let's switch gears for just a second. So you, you closed on your deal. How, how long ago, Kev? middle of January. January. Okay. So we're out, we're going on six months. Tell us about the lifestyle. Right, and it to your corporate life before, the control you have, the amount of hours you work,
0: how it feels on a daily basis, and whether you have any regrets. Well, bottom line up front, I don't have any regrets. It's a much better lifestyle, and it's it's not because of the fewer hours. I'm working more hours now, but I don't care. Like I'm here on the weekends. I'm I'm here late at night sometimes. It's different because it's my own, and I'm building something that that I. I'm going to be proud of, and that they're, that I'm going to reap the financial rewards for. I'll actually, you know, if I do it right, I'll be rewarded for the work that I put in. That wasn't the case in, in a corporate job because there's, you know, you you get paid a salary and you complete the work or you don't. And if you complete the work, your reward is more work.
2: Come Especially on, you got, you got rewarded with a 2.13% annual raise. Okay.
0: Not, not... When you're in public health IT and your salary is capped because you make too much money transferring into the role, and they <laughs> don't even raise your salary, yeah, I take it, yeah, take it all back. Listen, man, public health IT there's not a lot of money to be made in public health IT. I'm really, really good at choosing professions that don't make a nickel. So you know, hopefully that's not the case in the textile world or in the micro PE world, whatever we're calling this. But yeah, for the majority of my career, I've done, uh, I've not. Optimized for a dollar.
2: Let's let's put it that way. Fair enough. So no regrets, right? Like, take us down the road a little more about how things look different, though. Like, oh, I get it. Yeah, sure. There, there's some there's some extra hours. Like, uh, anyone going into entrepreneurship thinking they're you know doing a four hour work week, you know, is likely pulling the wool over their eyes. At least at the start. But how else have have things changed and just in terms of like,
0: yeah, I mean, when I was in Dallas, I was driving an hour into the hour into the hospital every day and then things changed with COVID. And so we were, we were remote for, well, at first I was in the command center doing all the disaster management. And then we realized, Hey, we probably shouldn't all be in this command center. As we learned about how everything spread and we're all, you know, congregate in this room and all the infection preventionists are running around like, this is dumb we need to disband this command center and make it virtual. So eventually we did that. And, you know, I, I started working from home and like everybody else, there was that adjustment period. And like, this is pretty cool. I like this. You're able to feel like you have a little bit more control of your life, but it was still, it was pretty lonely. I would be shocked if you guys didn't feel this way. It's like just the zoom meeting fatigue and just being on on camera all the time. It's exhausting. And, you know, so right now I don't, I think in, in my, If I were to write out a wish list as I was buying a company, it would have been like, if I could work remote at this company I would buy and the team distributed across the country, that would be ideal. I'm not sure that's true because now I'm, I really enjoy being in the office here. I enjoy, you know, talking to the employees every day. I enjoy interacting with them. I bring my dogs into work. You know, in my I, and now I have to make sure that, you know, he's been ado- one of them has been adopted by one of the employees here who's just gave him literally a plate of chicken right after she gave him some doggy ice cream that she picked up for him. I mean, it's just like, you know, stuff that, you know, that's it's just it's nice. It's a it's a family environment. It's you know people genuinely care about each other. They genuinely, especially this team, they've been together for 15 years. So they're they are like family. You know, for better or for worse, that is true here. So I don't know. I like that. I like that it's a little bit more family oriented That it's a little more relaxed that I can do things like bring my dogs into the office and have them be, you know, welcomed and people enjoy, you know, visiting with them and having sort of the the levity kind of brought into the office. It's not stuffy. It's not, you know, it's not any, I'm not coming in here trying to institute a bunch of structure. It's just, you know, it's a family business and we're going to, and we run it that way. And that's not something that would ever happen at a at a corporate environment like I was in. Not the least I mean it's, it's a hospital, so you can't bring your, your pets and everything in there, but but even just, you know, I mean, could you bring your dog into your law firm? Like, no, that's that's not the way that wouldn't be <laughs> well,
3: acceptable. It depends on if you're a remote or not, but yeah. Yeah, I right.
2: Could, I, well, I could have done yeah. it. I could have done it once, Kevin. I'll I'll put it that way. I could have done it once. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, uh, on your last day. That's right. <laughs> that's right. No, that's that's super interesting. Well, really appreciate you joining us, Kevin. We're coming up on time here. Would love to wrap up just with your your thoughts. We've kind of meandered a little bit, but summarize for people listening who get to the point that I know you got to in your journey where you're like, you know, on your, your deal, your company you own now, where you're like, this deal's not closing, right? The deal's falling apart again. This isn't going to close. Like, I'm never going to get there. Like, am I ever going to actually close a deal and be a CEO? Talk for a second to that person that's just feeling like, man, I've been searching for a year. I've been researching for a year. I can't find the right business. I found what I thought was a good business and it's all falling out from under me. Like, What did you do to get from there, from that point to the closing table?
0: So I think there's, I think there's two answers. And the first one is make sure you're not being too picky because I see a lot of people out there who have a wish list and sort of like finding a partner, right? You can have your sort of wish list, but at the end of the day, you know, you, you're either in love or you're not and you can make it work. And, you know, you either want to put the work in to make it work or you don't. So I, I see a lot of people who are just, you know, who are fixated on, on the, it needs these certain characteristics and, you know, otherwise it's a no go. Like for me, I mean, look, the the heritage is very working capital intensive. You know, we have a lot of inventory, we have a long sales cycle. That's painful at points. There are other businesses that are heavy capex. You know, there are other businesses that have, you know, labor issues. Everything has problems. You just sort of have to choose your hard. Pick what you're willing to deal with. So that's that's sort of like the make sure you're not, you know, screwing yourself by avoiding you know companies that otherwise would be a good value if you just put a little elbow grease into it otherwise it the dam will break you know you will if you're not being picky if you have a a reasonable list of criteria so you have a reasonable geographic location and they're all sort of like that triple constraint theory right like you can have a if you, you if you have a broader geographic focus you can have a broader ebitda focus you can have you can raise your ebitda limit. But if you have a really narrow geographic focus, you probably ought to look a little further down market and, m- and make sure you're capturing things, you know, in your area. So if you're just looking in the Charlotte area, you probably shouldn't look at businesses that are a million EBITDA plus, right? You're going to limit yourself quite a bit. It might be good for you to get in at the 500,000 uh, EBITDA level. So, I mean, once you've if you've got reasonable criteria, something will come through. And make sure you're make sure you know. And as you're going through your communications with your brokers and through, and I would recommend if you have a timeline, not doing proprietary search. It's it's not a waste of your time. It's just it's just spinning your wheels for very little return. Do it once you've already acquired, because then you're not in a hurry. You know, when I bought, I was adamant about buying. So I wanted to buy before the end of the year. I wanted to buy before December. 30, whatever, 2022. 20, and I missed it by two weeks, right? So I closed January 13th. So I mean, like, I missed it, but I held true to that deadline. Like, that was my goal. And we all were pushing towards that goal. So I think, I think if you have, give yourself a deadline. And a lot of times your, your financial runway may determine your timeline. Right. It sort of did for me. And also just my impatience. And, you know, I, I wanted to get out of what I was doing. Make sure your criteria, are reasonable and then just keep grinding like develop that you will you will I, I said this on twitter like i will crawl over glass to get this deal done because i wanted it so bad yeah and i yeah i, I couldn't imagine doing anything else and i know that sounds cliche but I, I think if i think if that's true for you you will make it happen you might have to get bloody you might have to get dirty but you, you can make it happen and and once you get to the other side, it'll all be, it's, you know, it'll all be worth it. But going through it, I mean, there's, ask my wife, you know, there's plenty of times when, when we were sitting in our house in Texas and I would just stare at the wall, you know, and she would catch me a couple of times and I'd just be like staring at the wall. She's like, are you okay? And it's like, no, I'm having an existential crisis, <laughs> but, but like that will happen. Search is lonely. Like we talked about, right. Yeah. And it's, you, you've got to be willing to grind through it. So it's, you know, as long as you're buttoned up on your side, uh, just keep pressing, keep making those, you know, move the ball inches down the field. And eventually you're going to, you're going to bust one out and you're going to, you know, be able to run it in for a score, but I'm not downplaying the, the, the challenges of that at all, because I know it's, it's tough. Find people to talk to, find yeah. people that, that are going through the same. That's why I recommend people go to that boot camp. That Sam's boot camp is like, you get a cohort of people immediately and you have follow-up calls with people you know even if you don't learn a thing which i don't think is possible but even if you don't learn a thing you get people and that that matters having that support group matters yeah so th- those would be the things i would i would advise if you're if you feel like you're hitting a brick wall over and
2: over i love that that's that's yep. super great advice for the search process and otherwise as we talked about how you bridge your community across, even even post closing and things like that. The grit, the tenacity, right? I mean, that's the difference. Not just in who's going to have think a that's... successful search, but who's going to be a successful CEO, who's going to be a successful manager, who's going to build a successful roll-up strategy, whatever it may be. That's really great advice, and, Kevin. And really appreciate appreciate you making the time. You you reference Twitter. You're active in the community. Where can people find you? Where can people follow along? And I'll pause for a second before you shout it out. You, you've been posting pretty regularly updates just on kind of your transition into the business and how things are going. So even just tactically for people who are new business owners or, or about to become new business owners, really actionable advice from you online. Where, where can people find you?
0: Yeah. So I'm at Bevelhausen on Twitter. I'm also on LinkedIn. There's not many people named Bevelhausen, so I'm pretty easy to find. If you, well, you want to shoot me an email, I'm at Kevin at com. And also, you know, look, if, if you're a searcher, I'd love to talk to you. Reach out. I know I'm inviting, you know, tons of tons of messages, but I, I enjoy those conversations. I'm happy to give you resources and point you in the right direction. And then, you know, I've also joined Fruition Capital as a general partner. We're raising a fund to invest in searchers. So if you're interested in learning more about that, either as a, as a searcher or investor, let me know because we're we're only partnering with searchers who are as gritty as the people that we're talking about here. And I think you need that you know, in order to, to actually be successful. So it's been yeah. great great well, to share yeah, with I you guys. I want to
3: give you, a, I give you a, a distinction of sorts because I think this may be the least sure. I've talked in a 60 minute period of time in my adult life. So uh,
0: you're going to be okay. You- no,
3: yeah, yeah, I'm doing great. No, I was just enjoying listening go ahead, to good, so go good. Kudos yeah. for uh, having an engaging conversation there.
1: <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Mundane Millionaires. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, make sure to follow Mundane Millionaires wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. See you next time.